0: Okay, so uh, we're talking about worship and uh, why we do what we do. And so just, I thought what I would do today is just remind us of the main principles of worship and then we can take some Q&A or actually first talk just a little bit for just five minutes or so about some of Calvin's reforms and then spend the rest of the time in Q&A. So just very briefly, just for a couple of minutes, uh, when we think about worship the most important thing to remember is that God gets to say what is acceptable. We don't say what is acceptable. That's, that is actually a major paradigm shift for us uh, because we live in a consumer culture. We pretty much operate as consumers on everything, which isn't bad. I'm not knocking, you know, being a consumer. I like shopping around for tires and getting the best deal. But when it comes to worship, we don't shop churches to find which one we like. Uh, we... We really shouldn't even say uh, the questions like "Did you like worship?" is not a good question to ask. That's too consumer-oriented. I mean, I know what you mean by at least I think I, I think I know what you mean, uh, but it's not a good question to ask. Neither is "Did you like the sermon?" If you want to ask questions about a sermon, there are good questions to ask. Uh, was it biblical? Did it point? How did it point me to Christ? How did it tell me? the way in which I am to live. How, we need to receive it as the word of God that's over us, not as, oh, that was kind of interesting, did you like it? And I was talking with somebody recently who says, you know, it's interesting how even Reformed people still talk in that consumer, kind of evangelical way. And uh, it's hard to kill. And it's really hard to kill in worship. Um, did you like worship is a, an illegitimate question. Um, Nadab and Abihu apparently didn't like the worship they were doing. So they tried something different, they innovated a little, and it got them killed. And so we're really not interested in whether you know uh, we like it, it's whether God likes it. And so we set time aside to give him the worship that is due uh, to his name. So that's an important principle to start with. Hebrews 12, uh, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for he is a consuming fire. That's new covenant worship. Uh, and then we, we, the, how to know what is acceptable is going to his word. And so his word regulates worship. Uh, we call that the, the regulative principle of worship. Uh, namely, that we only do that which God has commanded and this was uh i can integrate a little bit of calvin's reforms this was that was calvin's understanding of uh how worship should be regulated it was a, it was slightly different from luther who said well as long as god hasn't for, forbade something we can do it but uh luther you know often would say these sort of overstatements that later you needed to kind of tie up the loose ends because if you play that out i mean that i mean did has god forbade that there is uh, juggling in worship. It has God forbade that there are skits? I mean, you can open, that opens the door to anything. And, uh, and Calvin said, no, that just allows for way too much idolatry and superstition. And uh, wrote very clearly in his treatises on worship, namely uh, the necessity of reforming uh, the church, a treatise he wrote in 1544, uh, that you know, it's only that which God has commanded we may do. And uh, what he has commanded, we can discern from the New Testament, are those main elements, okay, which is word and sacrament, and the prayers. So Acts two forty two is the closest thing we get to a new covenant liturgy. Um. Those are the main elements. God speaks to us through his word and his sacraments, our visible word. We speak to him in prayer. And prayer is, encompasses a lot. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord, allowing the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with that word, uh, Colossians 3. Uh, we, it, it also involves our confession of the faith, As we lift that confession up, saying, yes, Lord, you are the covenant Lord. And in this covenant renewal ceremony, we are saying we believe your word as summarized in this ancient creed. Uh, All of the prayers we lift up for illumination, for confession of sins, for intercession for one another, uh, application of the sermon. Those are all us speaking to God. And when we speak to God, uh, as in in the worship service, uh, it should be the entire congregation speaking together, as we do in song, as we do in confession, or it should be uh, the minister who is set apart uh, for this purpose of leading the people in worship. Uh, it, in worship, there's really no place for a select, uh, non-ordained, non-office bearer to begin leading God's people in worship. Um, I, and again, this is a modern novelty. You know, I told you about the lunch I had with an evangelical pastor. And he says, do you lead or who leads your worship? And I said, I do. And he thought that meant that I, wow, you know, I have a guitar and I go and then I preach right after that. He's like, you're doing a lot. I said, well, it's not exactly what, we, what you think. I, I'm speaking in the historic Christian way. Uh, the, the whole service is worship. Um, but if you have a few people up front singing to the Lord like a, a choir, like a, like a quartet, or a, or, a, or a solo, which may be very beautiful. It begs the question, then, wh- which is this? Is this God speaking to us, or is it us speaking to God through the, through the soloist? Because there's that, there is that uh, dialogical principle, that principle of dialogue. God to us... Us to God. Now, in a solo, you know, a person sings a very wonderful, moving hymn. It's moving. Is that us speaking to God? And if so, how come we're not all singing? Why are we having one person sing for us who is not the minister to lead us in prayer? Or is it, uh, is it God speaking to us? And if that's the case, um, uh, you know, shouldn't that also be the minister of the word bringing God's word to God's people? You see the dilemma. And maybe that's something you want to ask a question about later. But um, this is something that's important for us to remember is the dialogue that takes place in worship. And so, uh, regulative principle of worship, elements, word and sacrament, prayers... That, of course, as we explored a little bit last week, raises a lot of questions about circumstances. And the circumstances are the when, how of worship, whereas the elements are the what. So, for example, should we all sit in the pews and have the supper passed out, distributed, or should we come forward for the supper? which is the right way. They're both okay. And this is what we have to understand, is that circumstances, sometimes we can get real fussy about circumstances. And I like to argue the point and reason for the ministerial gown, for a, a, a high pulpit, for people coming forward, but they're only circumstantial. It is not wrong for a church to do it a different way in terms of circumstance. That's everything. 9.30, 10 o'clock. It's, it's what we call adiaphora. It's indifferent. But elements are not the fact that you have to have the Lord's Supper. Should it be unleavened bread or leavened bread? Oh, there's been all kinds of ink spilt on that. You know what Calvin said? Calvin says adiaphora. Doesn't matter. There's good imagery in both. Unleavened bread is like Passover, but leavened bread actually, New Covenant, you know, it's not something the church should be even, you know, arguing about. It's not, you know, whether or not the Lord's... What's happening in the Lord's Supper is a point to be argued, not um, what kind of bread. We use Hawaiian sweet bread, by the way, which is good. And port wine. And so, circumstantial. And there's reasons for that. Who gets to say what the circumstances are? Who gets to say what the circumstances are? The elders. Thank you. Just want to make sure, you you know... They're looking like well, I don't know um, you. No, I don't. I have to submit to these things as well. I make my case, and uh, for something or at times I say you know here's either one. But I'm only one voice amongst all the elders, and uh, the circumstances vary. And so, regulative principle of worship dialogue. It's also a covenant renewal ceremony in which God, the covenant Lord, summons His covenant people, and He condescends and speaks to them. Okay. And so as we went through the liturgy, which just means order of worship, we looked at each one of those elements and uh, see how they're biblical, how they also have historical precedent, and ultimately how the, how the liturgy that we use in our church uh, is very similar to the liturgies of the 16th century. Uh, Calvin, Knox, Bootser... And those liturgies were very similar to the liturgies used in the early church. You know, uh, Irenaeus, Cyprian, Tertullian, uh, uh, Justin Martyr. And um, so there's continuity in the historic Christian church. The Reformation was not a revolution uh, of worship. It was simply a removal of idolatry and superstition and holding fast to those things that are good. And uh, that's why, again, I just think it breaks my heart when there's a Christian worship service today that doesn't have a reading of the law, a confession of sins. And most churches today don't have them. They don't have a benediction. They don't say the Lord's Prayer. And what's the the truth is uh, that church, no matter how good the preaching may be, they have departed from not just the Reformation, from the historic Christian church to not have a benediction, to not have the confession of sins, to not have uh, uh, the Ten Commandments regularly read, that's arrogance is what that is. That's saying, I know better than the past. Now, maybe it's ignorance. Maybe they don't know anything uh, as far as worship goes. But in most cases, it's arrogance. It's, you know, we just need something a little more chic to reach people today. And, uh, well, yeah, we can have things like air conditioning or lights or sound, you know. We don't, we're not here in the dark with candles, and, uh, but that doesn't mean we change the elements. And we would see those the reading of the law, confession of sins, benediction. Those are all word elements that have been in uh, historic liturgies, the oldest historic liturgies that we have access to. Questions on any of that? Anything with worship? So a comment that I heard about the liturgy was that um, what a good reason to have it is that it protection from the passed. Right? So and the people, I would argue. So in the event yeah. that he, for whatever reason, doesn't preach, it doesn't right. well, we should not be Sure. That is true. That is absolutely true. It's interesting to me, a couple was telling me how they were in a Methodist church recently and a mainline Methodist church with uh, a woman pastor. I believe she was a lesbian, too. I mean, just so far departed, right? However, what many people don't realize is that the Methodist church, anybody know what uh, denomination the Methodist church comes out of? Well, no, but, but further back, what did it, Wesley? What was Wesley? Who was John Wesley? Uh, no, no. He, he was influenced by the Moravian brothers. Who was he ordained by? Anybody know? He was Church of England, Anglican. The Church of England was a Reformation church. The 39 Articles, they have good liturgy. So if you go into a UMC today, United Methodist Church, it can be crazy theologically liberal. But if you pull out their hymnal, you will find a liturgy that actually has long gospel in it. And they were in this church and they said the liturgy was good. But then there was all these shenanigans like thrown in there in the midst of it. And then she came out with this message that basically denied everything in the liturgy. They don't even know anymore. It's similar to the, uh, the apostasy of Rome, similar to the apostasy of the priesthood, you know, in Israel's day. So, yeah, it should. It should protect us in many ways. And protect us also from a congregation that wants to innovate. You know, that's a, that's a, it's like... Uh, train tracks that keep the, the train yeah. moving, so. Yeah, Jake. Uh, I have a question, I think it's going to lead into my wife's question. Okay. is 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Yeah. Well, it's not a liturgy, but what he's talking about, what he's tr- you know, the greater context here is he's trying to bring order to a church that was incredibly uh, disorderly uh, I mean, in so many ways, not just with, uh, with people shouting out and speaking in tongues, but also with uh, uh, interrupting the Lord's Supper, which he deals with earlier in chapter 11. You know, they were eating too much. They were getting drunk on the wine. The rich who had a lot were grieving the poor by eating so much because the poor didn't even have that in their house. And so he's trying to bring order. And uh, then, with regard to, I mean, is there a question with regard to the tongues precisely or? I guess the tongues and the prophecy. You know, right. I feel like when you read Bible, this chapter kind of 10, that, that should be a part of the New Covenant Church. Right, but here's the thing: Paul, the, the the canon for one has not yet been completed, and then we have to go back to where tongues originate, and so it's at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, and what is it that people heard? They didn't hear shandala, uh, which seems to be often the uh, the angelic word. I don't know what it means in angel language, but it's one that people use: shandala, shandala, shandala. Uh, they heard a clear exposition of the gospel in a foreign tongue. So it was the gift of languages, and uh, including Koine Greek, because that's clear from Acts 2, people came and they could hear in their own language the gospel. That is a redemptive historical event that cannot be repeated because what do you have? You have the gospel going out to the Gentiles for the very first time, whereas the gospel had essentially been limited to one tongue, one tribe, one nation for so long now, you know, Jesus says to the ends of the earth, you're going to make disciples. Bam, you have languages being spoken everywhere. So the Holy Spirit coming upon the New Covenant Church in that redemptive historical uh, period uh, where the apostles are still alive and the canon is still be- being given, you have, because we're sinful people, there are abuses of it, which was going on in Corinth. But the fact that he's correcting that doesn't mean that. You know, that we all should be using, we should all be speaking in, you know, Farsi or Swahili or standing up and, you know, somebody else giving an interpretation, which I've never heard, I've never seen that ever done, ever. I've been in Pentecostal churches. I grew up in Calvary Chapel and there were tongues and everybody said Shandala. I'm using a shorthand for your private prayer language which isn't what happened at Pentecost. So this, this here is, is him bringing order, and I would say is an argument for a, an orderly liturgy, but not necessarily that these should be parts of the liturgy. Okay, now you're going to say this or you're going to say that. This is a, uh, a period that is unique to redemptive history and the giving of the canon. So that would be, that would be my understanding of it. In English or a foreign tongue? I'm just kidding. Okay. Right. But the conversation. So she had said back, well, what would you say about chapter 14 Right. He's correcting it. Yeah, he's correcting disorderly problems. I mean, this is this is no more disorderly than the uh, the problems that were going on at the Lord's Supper. He has a lot harsher things to say about that, and then he, and then the biggest problem going on in the church of Corinth, even more than the sexual morality, was the denial of the bodily resurrection, which he saves for chapter 15. So this was a messed up church, a really messed up church, you know, a charismatic Corinth, and. Uh, Paul is seeking to, to fix that, but Paul is still alive. It's in that, it's still in, this, is, this is an inspired letter. And uh, so, you know, the, the fact that uh, there, are, there are still tongues being spoken during the period of the apostles uh, doesn't necessarily mean that that continues, you know, on into uh, today any more than the apostolic ministry, the apostolic ministry of apostles does. Well, I would base it on, the, on, the, on his word in terms of being orderly. Not having disorder. Right. Yeah, no more than uh, using the Psalms as proof texts for guitars. I hear that a lot. Well, the Psalms are filled with references to praising God at the tambourine and the lyre. And so you people pull out their tambourines. And, well, we have to remember that David is writing in the context of temple worship. And so that this is all Levitical worship that has been fulfilled in Christ. And so it, it, if that continues on, then we could say that animal sacrifices continue on, um, or other temple elements. We are the new temple. And uh, so while we do praise the Lord, I just don't think that's a good argument for instruments. Now, I'm not opposed to instruments. You know, because it's a circumstance. And I would even say, in principle, in principle, if you say a piano is okay, then a tambourine is okay. The question is the continuum of wisdom. What is more wise, what is less wise, right? And so because I've met a lot of Reformed people who act like, you got to have an organ. you got to have an organ for it to be Reformed. I'm like, really, what did people do before organs? And by the way, Calvin hated the organ. Hated this. He hated worship, uh, um, music all, or uh, instruments during worship altogether. I think the most wise thing of all would be have no instruments. It's the wisest. You totally remove yourself from having any kind of consumer inclinations. The problem is it's really hard to do. And we, we did it for a while. We, we used to have once a month in the early days, some of you might remember, uh, Geneva Sunday, we called it. And we would sing a cappella. And I love singing a cappella. Like one stands, it sounds great. But you try to start a song all the way through and end the song with no nothing there to keep you on tune. You know, a bunch of modern people who've grown up post-Beatles and we don't know, we read music, most of us. And you know what would happen is, the front would be at one pace and the back would be at another pace. And then you had Corinth going on, you know. Then you had it. was like, <laughs> demon possessed. And so you, you needed uh, order to be brought. And that's how I would say you apply 1 Corinthians 14. It's like, no, 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 no. Okay, look, we need to be orderly. We need to, God is a God of order. You know, let's have a, an instrument that keeps us on tune. Um, that would be the argument for musical instruments, not the psalms. And I'm just using the same principle as as, uh, tongues as a proof text. Yeah. I think also on that uh, scripture, I had a conversation with someone that said, well, uh, the whole issue of canon and that word prophecy, and that scripture was saying, well, it's it's not the kind of prophecy that you think. When you prophesy, you're just declaring the truth of God's word. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. The, the Puritans used to call preaching prophesying. Um, William Perkins, uh, one of the earliest English Puritans, uh, wrote a great book called The Art of Prophesying. And uh, it's a book on preaching. And so, but that doesn't mean that we all should be preaching. And this, the, what he's dealing with in Corinth, he's also touching on uh, in his letter to the Ephesians, that people have different roles in the church. And so uh, the minister proclaims. Uh, we don't all get up and proclaim. Imagine how crazy that would be. You know, everybody's saying, well, I got, you know, everybody comes with a sermon. And uh, so he's dealing with uh, order in the church. And I would say, yeah, there, the new covenant sense of prophesying, or post-canon sense of prophesying is for, for, uh, proclaiming, foretelling, uh, not foretelling, The Word of God. So the apostolic ministry now is using the apostolic canon and proclaiming that, and that's done in the in the preaching of the Word. So, was another hand? Yeah, Freddie. Is there anything on the scripture that says that the leader of worship has to be male? Sorry. Anything on the scripture that says that the leader of worship has to be male? Oh. Yes. The question was, uh, is there anything in the scriptures that says the, leaders, the leader in worship, well, it has to be a man or woman, it depends, first of all, on how we understand leading worship. If we're talking about, again, a ministry of the word, which is what worship is. Worship is a ministry of the word. Um, then the leader of worship, the minister, Yeah, the scriptures speak about that person being male. But in terms of, uh, you know, someone accompanying the worship with musical instrumentation so that we can all sing together, no, that person is not, their ministry is not a ministry of word. And that's why we call, like the pianist, they're not a worship leader, they're an accompanist. They're a company because the worship is the people of God singing the 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 instrumentation is just there to keep us from turning into the Church of Corinth, basically, um, but in terms of yeah, the minister being a, a male, uh, yeah, the scriptures are pretty clear about that. yeah, right yeah, well, okay, here's one of those texts that. You know, nowadays it's just not going to find itself on a bumper sticker or on a, on a refrigerator magnet anywhere, but, um, well, it's in the Bible. So, um, I mean, this is one, this is one here, First Timothy, so, and again, so that's not no, this is not circumstantial. Paul, okay, this, again, the, and the context is everything. We, this is something we just, we, we can't hear enough of, guys. When you read the New Testament, when you read the Bible, you have to constantly put everything in context. And so when you pick up the New Testament, you've got to ask yourself in every one of those epistles, who is he writing to? Why? When he's writing to Timothy, he's writing to a pastor, the pastor of, Cor- of uh, Ephesus. And, well, this is 1 Timothy. He wrote two letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. They're both to the pastor of Ephesus. And, they, and in those letters... Paul deals with, the, with order in the church a lot and the ministry of the word. and Now, this is just one passage, okay? But there's a whole bunch we could take from Scripture. But this is a, um, a pretty significant one. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, beginning of verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Incidentally, that's why I lift my hands up when I say let's pray. Um, I'm not just saying, let's pray. I'm, I'm lifting hands up. And sometimes when I pray, I lift my hands up uh, during, the, during the prayer. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Uh, now, look, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly attire. That doesn't mean that there's something intrinsically evil about braided hair. He's simply saying, just use a little modesty. Some of this, what he's dealing with here, you know, the element here, the principle is modesty. Just be, be smart when you come to church. You know, don't, don't dress like you're going to a nightclub in Vegas. Um, but, and now if you see somebody who is, you don't shun her. She may not know. She, she may be a new believer or an unbeliever. And we want her to hear the gospel. But let's be, use a little modesty, he says. But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. This is where Paul gets labeled chauvinist, misogynist, everything, you know, post-feminist move. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was, now he gives a reason, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so there's this order that he shows from creation saying that, It's not that one is better than another, but that God has made us different. This is, you know, this is all foreign speak nowadays, right? In our world that just says, let's just eliminate all the categories and blend it all together. And you decide what category you're in. And if you want to invent a new category, that's great. You know, and what's coming next is, uh, you know, well, then I can marry my dog. Because who are you to deny me and my identity, right? Uh, That's where we're headed. Paul goes back to creation. And he says, look, there was an order that was given, and they're different, male and female. And within the church, there's order as well. It's not a matter of quality. It's not a matter of superiority and inferiority. It's simply a distinction of, of use and of designation of role, uh, just like you have a pitcher and a catcher on a baseball team. Uh, you cannot have a team without both of them. You need both. They just have different roles. And so Paul is saying the same, and he says, based on that, and, you know, if you got a problem with it, you can argue with the Holy Spirit. Uh, I didn't write this stuff. Uh, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. In the church, again, he's writing to a pastor of Ephesus. Now, that has also been abused by some men, you know, uh, in the home, you know, and say, you know, you can't say anything. And, uh, or... That all women should submit to all men. It doesn't say that. Uh, he says everywhere, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But in the context of the church, uh, a woman is not to have authority over a man. The elders have a role of authority. The minister is one of the elders, essentially. Uh, he's a teaching elder, and he has a role of authority. And so. Yes. Yeah. That's right. They're male. And there's no question on that. There's no question on on elders. Now, deacons don't have a role of authority. You know, it's a little bit different. And there's argument there for deacons and deaconesses or deacons and, you know, women workers, you know, what Paul calls uh, gunikas in chapter 3. And that's been debated throughout the history of the church. But in terms of elders and ministers, you don't find it. Not in the ancient church, not in the Reformation. You don't find it. That's a modern novelty. Uh time for one more or two more. Don, you had a question? Oh it about the meeting. Yeah, okay. That was easy. So mm-hmm. as far as the, we're in a federation, we have a church order. This goes to uh the Lord's Supper mm-hmm. Right, that's a question. To me it's like it's kind of a this I guess I I'm kinda going to another um URC church and show up I'm kind of expecting the Lord's Supper that's not there. Right. You're expecting, when you go to another URC, for it to be as good as Christ URC. <laughs> and then I know the experience. Hey, hey, I know. Hey, look, okay, and this is not, i bragging in here. Okay, it's just, it's true. You go to another URC and you get, you're a little let down. It's happened, I, I've heard it a million times. And on the Lord's Supper, they're not having the Lord's Supper. Is that, is that the question? Yeah. Because it's every quarter, right? Our church order says, yeah, uh, a minimum of once a quarter every three months. I know. It's (laughs) cray-cray. Yeah. cray It's kind of a grace issue, though. I mean, because it's like I don't want to be, I don't feel like I'm being legalistic about it. It's just that it was a missed opportunity. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah big missed opportunity. I agree. Now, is it a worship service without the Lord's Supper? Yeah, it's possible to have a worship service without the Lord's Supper, but it, it, it can't be a church if it doesn't administer the Lord's Supper regularly. The question is, you know, what is regularly? Um, Calvin argued for it at least weekly, because we understand word and sacrament, and we understand, you know, the, the covenant work. You have the covenant promises given and then the covenant sign that follows, and even a covenant meal. And that's you find that all throughout redemptive history. And yet, also, kind of going back to James's question, it protects a little bit. You know, if the guy doesn't get the gospel in the... If you come and you hear a sermon that is only about, um, you know, you and be better, and... Uh, you know, and when you guys get out there and you're visiting other churches, you will sometimes hear that in other Reformed churches. I know you think you hear that sometimes here, but you don't. Uh, because, you know, you get, to, you get to a point where you're used to filet mignon, right? And, uh, and then it's like, well, well, you know, the seasoning on this one was just a little bit, you know, he could have. Uh. And uh, then you go to another church, and I'm, I'm being serious, I'm being honest here. You know, you take it for what it's worth, but it's true. You go to another church, And you're like, whoa, what was that? And there was no gospel. If the Lord's Supper is there, it will protect uh, the people from uh, a sermon that was only law. Now, we need to hear the law. And sometimes when we hear a a sermon with a lot of law in it, we're just flinching because we heard the law, which isn't right. But I'm talking about a, a sermon where there is no Christ. No Christ. He didn't make an appearance. And... And then he comes in the Lord's Supper. If you don't have that, it, it, it's a big danger to the church. But on a more positive note, you also want it because, again, it's the natural, it's the natural response, isn't it? Hearing the gospel. Hearing the gospel and, and hearing how uh, we are right with God because of Christ and we come to the table. And uh, that's the right thing to do. Why, why don't we all do that? Because in our church order it says four times a year. Why? Well, because that goes back to the city, of, the city council of Geneva that told Calvin he could not uh, have Lord's Supper uh, every week. Because the city council had to approve the liturgy. Because in Geneva, you had what so many conservative Americans want. Uh, you had this sort of holy land where the the church and state were all wed together, where everybody Christianity was the only accepted religion, and you were forced to be a Protestant. You can't force people to be disciples. You cannot force people to be disciples of Christ. And the way Christianity flourishes, the way worship flourishes, is amid false religions. False religions have to be permitted by the state in order for the gospel to really flourish. When the state forces the gospel upon people, you have big problems. And and Calvin wrote about this, starting with the idea that the city council had to approve the liturgy. So imagine us going to the city council of of San Diego or Santee and saying, is this okay? That's what you had in Geneva. And uh, that tradition continued in other places Uh, in Scotland, partly because they didn't have enough ministers to serve the Lord's Supper. They would have elders read the the sermon, and it continued. And then, you know, a lot of times our practices, we do things because we've just done them. And then we start thinking that precedence is orthodoxy. Well, whatever I've done must be right. I don't know why we do it, but it must be right because we do it. And we're conservative Christians, doggone it. And so if you change something, that means you're progressive and liberal. If you keep it, that means you're conservative and biblical. But what if what you are conserving... That's why, that's why I love my brother, Eric Anderson. He's always saying, and what do conservatives conserve? You have to ask, what am I conserving? If I'm, if I'm conserving a practice that is not biblical, then that's not good, and that has, that has to change. So I might not air this one on the... Because, but you know, it's it's the truth. So, it's a practice. Here's another one. How many of you came from churches where you had monthly communion? Wow, I thought there'd be more hands than that. Um, where is that in the Bible? Why monthly? It's first, first every month. Well, but isn't it easier just to remember Sunday? Why monthly? That is a mystery to me. I want to know. Why monthly? It's more special. So here's the thing, right? If you're only remembering Jesus in the Lord's Supper, then yeah, you don't want to do it that often. It's like Christmas. You know, Christmas is awesome once a year. But Christmas every week? I mean, come on. So you space it out. The problem, though, is the understanding of what the Lord's Supper is. The frequency of the Lord's Supper should be determined by the nature of the Lord's Supper. So if it's only remembrance, you only do it once in a while. Guess how often Zwingli, who was the memorialist, how often did he want the Lord's Supper? Once a year. And But if you know that you're receiving Christ, his body and blood in heaven... Then I want that as often as I can get that, which I think a minimum should be weekly. You know, there are churches that argue even for having it morning and evening, and. uh so we, had, we came a church that was monthly and alternated before, between the morning service and the evening service, just so you can catch it. All right. What if you're sick that Sunday? Then you got to wait an extra. Yeah. And then you have disciplinary issues if you have somebody that's barred from the table for. Delinquency, then it's easier for them to skip out that Sunday. Or, you know, it, there's a whole bunch of reasons why it doesn't make sense. But it comes down to I want to keep it special. Well, isn't the preaching special? Isn't the singing special? Maybe we should. Maybe we should only go to church once a month. You know, uh, it, the argument fails. So uh, we should stop. I think it's quarter after. If you guys have more questions, I'll I'll uh, be here to to answer, but um, I think I've already gotten into enough trouble. Women in office, weekly communion, geez, what else? Music. Uh, no, it's all good stuff. I, I enjoy talking about this. And, and I, I do want us to, um, to know why we do what we do and to, and to know that we're not doing this liturgy just because we do it, that there's a reason for everything we do and that we need to know those reasons and we need to pass it on to our children. If we just do it without asking a question, why? Like I said, even why does he raise his hands and say those words? If we don't tell our children, it will break down at some point. And they'll just say, well, this is boring. I found something more exciting. We need to know why we do what we do. And so these discussions are good to have. They're good to have. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we we do thank you for the opportunity to come and worship you and to pray, to sing, to confess and to hear you speak to us. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss these things and help us to grow in our understanding of what it means to offer you acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Bless us this afternoon, Lord. Bless our worship this evening. May you be glorified in it. And may you continue to feed us and nourish us along the way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.